here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Pack it up, pack it in, let me begin. My name's Hamza, yes in. Bubble on a bubble on a toilet, trouble and maybe six foot two and your eyes are blue. But if you mess with me, I'll... Yeah, see how I muted myself on that one. So again, I'm just going to walk out to the beach kind of area. I could already see a, um, what's it called, oyster catcher and a few more gulls. So hopefully we'll get a little bit of uh, cool sounds. Welcome to Get Birding, a guide to bird watching and home to stories about birds. Supported by Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance. Welcome to this week's episode of Get Birding. And in this episode, we'll be talking about water. As some of you might know now, I live by the sea and that allows me to have a variety of birds right in front of my doorstep. But one thing that I haven't really touched upon too much is the little lochen that's right in front of the house. This lochen is brackish, which means it's half seawater, half freshwater. That mix of the two waters makes it such an important place for wildlife. At the moment, if I look out now, I've got widgeon and teal just sitting there feeding and they go to sleep. But at every time of the year, there's something different on that lochen. You can get some birds that solely live in freshwater and others that live solely in seawater. But when you have that mixture between freshwater and seawater, you have this unique habitat and each season it brings a different character to the lochen. There's always the grey heron that kind of patrols the loch and the otters that come in. Now, when the otters do arrive onto the lochen, it's normally a mum trying to teach its baby how to fish. The lochen's only about two foot deep which is perfect for a young otter learning how to fish. And it's a little bit like having fish in a barrel. Now, you don't have to have a lochen to see birds. You can get birds in your local ponds. You can get birds on a bird bath. Even in a puddle in the middle of the city, birds will be attracted to it. Um, so you don't have to look too far. Ajay Tagala is someone Myro spoke to in season one of Get Birding. And I wanted to catch up with him and find out where he lives and what he's been getting up to since Myro last spoke to him. I live in a small village uh, in the middle of nowhere, really, out in the Cambridgeshire Fens, and uh, we're several miles from the next village. It's a flat landscape. It's the Fens. There's um, not many trees around, but there are there are some little wooded areas, and there's a lot of uh, wetland areas and wide open skies. 
and it's a great place for birds. It's a great place for wetland birds, lots of wildfowl, ducks, geese and swans. So there are birds on the move all the time and they keep us company in what's a, a very windy place. There's, there's not much shelter. So the wind does whip, rip through and it can be quite bleak in the winter. Uh, but you get the most wonderful sunsets, the most wonderful skies. And uh, it's it's lovely and quiet, but with with friendly people and great wildlife to keep it to keep it entertaining. I work as a ranger uh, at a place called Wiccan Fen, which is um, actually the oldest nature reserve in the UK. Since 1899, it's been protected for wildlife. And I'm delighted to be out there in all seasons, seeing the changing wildlife and uh, doing my bit to help protect it. I've been working there. Well, I've been working as a ranger now for 10 years, actually, a decade in conservation, which is really nice. So in the winter time, we, we do do some scrub clearance, habitat management. We don't do anything like that in the summer because that's the bird nesting period. So uh, we do sometimes have to uh, reduce tree cover um, in order to let wildflowers come through uh, and the associated insects with them. And uh, in turn, the birds that feed on the insects. So it's all it all feeds in. So and uh, working with volunteer parties as well to achieve more and also engaging with visitors as well. That's a big part, whether it be school groups, families, specialist interest groups, anybody coming for a walk. We're there to uh, make sure the paths are mown and, uh, and accessible for them, but also to give them some information and welcome them and give them some pointers as to where to go, what to see and what the Fen's all about, what, what wildlife reserves can offer. What, and it's about looking for wildlife, but also just that space and that um, calm, you know, walking and, and listening and maybe not hearing much traffic. And then also we've got uh, grazing livestock too. So we have highland cattle and conic ponies that help manage the, the grassland as well as us doing the practical work. They do that naturally. But we've got to keep an eye on them. We give them as wild a life as possible, but our day often starts with checking on them. And if, if they're up to some mischief, then we obviously have to deal with that. So you can run from one thing to another, but it's always a delight. Yeah. Who inspired you to do this? Because for me, it was like Attenborough, for sure. And Steve Owen, you know, like, crikey, g'day, mate. And you see him rolling around, wrestling a crocodile. They, Those two absolutely inspired me. Who is it for you? Who does it for you? Do you know, maybe it's a bit uncool, but um, Bill Oddie was really big when I was... Oh, <laughs> Not yeah. many other people my age were watching Bill Oddie, I guess. They were watching yeah. The Simpsons or something or whatever. I, I was, but I was watching like Bill Oddie Goes Wild. And he just seemed like this great bloke that just seemed like somebody who could live next door to me and was out you know, having fun, seeing birds and appreciating them. And I thought, yeah, I've got a beard now. Maybe that's subconscious. I don't know. <laughs> really bloke out with birds. And it got a sense of humour as well. And I like that, that, you know, you meet a lot of serious people and, and that's brilliant. But I think, uh, you know, take the wildlife seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. Have fun, have have a joke. Because, um, you know, you've got to have good humour when you're out looking for birds or any wildlife because, as you know, you're not always going to see what you want. So you've got to have a laugh and you've got to make the most of what you can get because it doesn't always go to plan. I see you on TV. You are of a gentleman of colour. Do you think you being on TV is important? And do you think it's beneficial for young people to be seeing people who are black, Asian um, on TV, and especially in stuff that is nature-led TV or documentaries? I absolutely do, because I really strongly believe that, that wildlife and the outdoors is for everyone. And so I think it really is important that 
whatever background anybody has, that um, they feel that, that they're welcome and that they're not excluded. And so, yeah, I do feel very strongly that it's good to have a great representation of different people from different backgrounds talking about their passion for wildlife, because then people that they may not know anybody uh, like themselves that enjoy it. And then they see someone on TV and think, ah, well, they're, they're, they're um, passionate about it. They're, they love it. Um, I feel more empowered to explore that myself. So definitely, I, I think we need role models from, from all backgrounds. And indeed, yeah, a lot of people that work on nature reserves do fit um, a certain certain demographic. But actually, what I've noticed in the last year or so, during the lockdown, actually, um, people that live nearby to where I was working at Wick and Fen, they were coming out and enjoying their wild local space because they didn't have anywhere else to go. And suddenly we were seeing a, a whole range of different people enjoying the countryside that perhaps hadn't really experienced it before. So actually, in a strange way, the last couple of years, I've seen a, a, a more diverse group of people out in the countryside. And uh, I'm really excited to see that and really pleased to see that. So we're heading into winter at the moment. What are you looking forward to seeing? What's going to be arriving soon? For me, heading into winter, that there's two real key birds here where I live in, in Cambridgeshire. And uh, the first one that arrives in autumn really is, is the crane. So they're pretty exciting because there's not that many cranes, although they are on the up. And uh, in, the, uh, in the autumn and through the winter, they flock together post-breeding. So uh, they've, they've hopefully had a few chicks and uh, they've grown up into small juveniles now. And they come and feed on the washes nearby. They flock together and they feed there and they roost there. And uh, last year we had something like, I think, 70. And they flew over the garden in one big group. So hearing them call, seeing them fly, these, you know, Britain's tallest bird. They're an amazing sight, an amazing sound, and I feel very privileged to see them. And a conservation success story because they were extinct for several years. I mean, like several hundred years uh, due to habitat loss and also hunting. And uh, now the world's getting a bit better. It's a bit different. There's more habitat being created, more wetlands. We're not hunting them, thank goodness. And so uh, it's great to see them on the up. What was it like seeing your first one? Well, I was, I was, I suppose, about 19 and uh, I didn't really know that there were wild cranes in the, the UK. So I, I heard these calls and I, I saw these big birds in the sky and I thought, are these zoo escapees? Are, are these really wild birds? And I learned the story about how this was in Norfolk. And of course, they came back to Norfolk about 1980 and uh started breeding and, and it's grown from there so uh, it was yeah it was amazing it was it didn't quite seem real uh, and then when when you realize it is real you think gosh this is something I want to be part of this is something I want to help um, provide habitat for and so that's part of what I do at Wiccan Fen actually and we have them for the last three years they've been breeding at Wiccan so that's been really exciting and that's kind of a, a nice positive in a world where birds are facing lots of challenges as indeed much wildlife is it, you know you really cling on to these successes and do all you can to maximize them. So is it only three years that they've been at Wiccan Fen for you? That's right, yeah. So they've been back in the UK for now uh, 40 years and uh, they made it into Cambridgeshire, I think, about 12 years ago. And so uh, these are birds from Europe that have come over and uh, settled and uh, the population's grown a bit like little egrets, really, I suppose, how they kind of spread from mainland Europe and decided, uh, you know, and, and took they spread from mainland Europe and started to, to breed and have success and become resident in the UK. And, uh, and now that now they're back here. What was their demise? What made them extinct as such? 
Well, the records are a bit patchy because this is going back to sort of, I suppose, the reign of Henry VIII, the uh, the um, the 16th century. So it was it was a mixture between definitely there was a lot of drainage of wetlands for agriculture, and that's been a, a continuing theme ever since. So loss of that habitat because they rely on nesting in wet areas. They nest uh, surrounded by water because that protects them from mammalian predators, protects them from animals that might come, foxes, badgers, etc. Being surrounded by water that gives them that safety, and surrounded by reeds as well. They're very secretive birds. So loss of that habitat that's crucial, but also yeah, hunting as well. I think they tasted good because I think. Um, there's some lists from royal feasts of you know x number of cranes were eaten at this feast so sadly yeah they were they were eaten um yeah. so that, that led to them disappearing you know when, when too many are taken and, and they lose their habitat they just dwindle and they disappeared for several hundred years sadly and there's a few kind of um crane nerds shall we call them lovingly that uh, really know their stuff and follow individual birds because they have slightly different appearances um, some individuals have more black on them or more white. They're slightly darker, slightly lighter, slightly distinctive markings. And so uh, there's a wonderful guy, Norman Sills, and he's got like a book of all the all the cranes in East Anglia. And he'll go out and see them and say, oh, well, that's pair C1 or whatever. That's the, the Wiccan fen pair or that's the Lake and Heath fen pair or the originals and uh, follow their progress. And uh, yeah, they, they've been breeding and there's definitely some new young that have been reared this year. And uh, now, they're, now they're just a mile from my house house you know on, on the washes there so it really is very exciting that they've had a good year it must feel kind of cool to uh only be a mile away from seeing cranes like for me i'd have to travel hundreds of miles do you feel privileged that they're that close to you Absolutely. Yeah, I do. Uh, and I feel a great sense of pride as well, because the fens are, are very flat and they can be a bit bleak in the winter and they get knocked for being this flat, boring place. And I can understand that because I love hills and there's nothing like a, a wonderful rolling landscape. But um, actually, you know, these fens that are now uh, growing wetlands again, um, uh, that have been knocked by lots of people, actually are a beautiful place. They really are wonderful skies, wonderful sunsets. And to have cranes as well, it's like, yes, you know, we are good. You should come to the fens. Uh, you know, we, we are worth visiting for sure. What's it like in winter? Because you're just describing it slightly bleak. Um, but there must be something else that kind of, you know, keeps it ticking, keeps it kind of cool in the middle of winter. Yeah, for me, uh, again, um, it's a wonderful bird species that comes and they come from Iceland where they breed in the summer. And that's the Hooper swans. So uh, they come to different parts of the UK, but there's a stronghold in the fens and uh, they come and they feed on sugar beet tops, potatoes and wheat, you know, the crops, because we're a very agricultural area around here. And they come here and they spend the winter. There's a place, Welney, just around the corner from me. And that's a place where they feed them and you can go there and get great views of them. But uh, as well as being at Welney where they're fed, they go and feed themselves around various fields and they move around throughout the winter. And last winter they were in the field next to my house for a few weeks until they'd exhausted that and they moved on. So for me now, it's really exciting thinking, where, where are the hooper swans going to appear? How close are they going to be to home? And uh, that magic, again, like the cranes, that magic sight and sound of them flying over, calling. And, uh, you know, with a wonderful sunset as well, it just kind of takes your breath away. And that really, uh, that gets me through the winter. That's what I look forward to. Why do they migrate and our mute swan, a swan that you'd normally see on a local pond, doesn't migrate, but this particular one does? 
Well, it's because these are actually wild swans. And although uh, the mute swans that we have in the UK are uh, are naturalised, they were introduced. I think it's a little bit uncertain, but probably around the Norman times or maybe even the Roman times. So going back a long time, but they were introduced here. Um, so they weren't completely wild. They've become naturalized. Whereas uh, the, the Hooper swans and indeed the Buick swans as well, these are the wild swans that breed up in the uh, the Arctic areas. And then they migrate in the winter to here where there's a, a more ready full supply of food to sustain them through the winter. So they have a more of a wild lifestyle and uh, they kind of, yeah, they, they migrate between two areas. Yeah. Why don't they stay in, in the Arctic? So if they breed there, I would classify them as an Arctic bird. Um, same as some of the stuff that comes to us um, in the summertime, I classify them as us if they breed with us. Why do they have to come to us? Uh, so you, you, sorry, you're saying like um, a swallow you'd classify as a British bird because although it spends the a- winter in Africa, it, it breeds here? Yeah, kind of. That's kind of like my definition of if I had to put countries to birds, that's how I would define it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, well, that's good because it's like their nationality, if you like, when they're born, you know, when they're hatched. If they hatch in England as a swallow in in England, yeah, that's British. If it's hatching in the Arctic, a swan or a goose, then yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I I totally get that. Yeah. Um, But like I said, it's it's about survival for them because in the Arctic, the winters are a lot harsher than here. And so the food supply just really isn't available. So although they're adapted to to breeding their young, you know, to raising their young there and perhaps being white as well, blending in with snow for camouflage as well. uh, That's an advantage to them breeding there. Um, But they've they've adapted to head south where it's a little bit warmer in the winter to, to find that food to give them a better chance of survival and uh, to make their, give their young a, a greater chance of surviving. But they're still struggling. They're still in decline, sadly. But, uh, you know, they, they face various challenges. But um, it's a pleasure to see them and, and to help them as much as we can. Yeah, but what else are you looking forward to for winter? Well, I'm looking forward to Christmas, obviously. It's a bit early to be thinking <laughs> about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But actually, uh, Wick and Fen, where I work on the reserve, one of the absolute highlights for me is the hen harriers because uh, they come and roost, and short-eared owls as well. So short-eared owls come from mainland Europe, and uh, the hen harriers come from further north, and they spend the winter on Wick and Fen. And uh, you, you can't always guarantee they're going to be there every night at a set time, but sometimes you can almost set your clock by it. And so I'm looking forward to seeing these wonderful birds that really excite me. That's pretty cool. I wouldn't have thought that hen harriers would come to Wick and Fen to kind of roost, do you know what I mean? Especially in the winter, I would have thought they'd be out in the moors somewhere, um, hiding out the way there. Well, they hide out the way in, in the reed beds here we've got. So they hide in the safety of the reeds at night because they're tall. They're surrounded by a bit of water or quite a lot of water sometimes, depending on the weather and the reeds. And yeah, they get the safety there. So they, they come down to feed and to and to, um, to be safe in, in our Fenland environment. And I guess years ago, we I mean, we had like the Montagues Harrier as well that bred here. So... Harriers have bred, and, and marsh harriers indeed are resident here. And so they behave a bit like marsh harriers. They're in the same habitat as, as the marsh harriers. They're cousins, if you like, and they're occupying the same, the same reed beds as them. I've got one more question, and I kind of ask all my guests this. Can you give me a cool scientific fact about birds? It could be anything. A cool scientific fact about birds? Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, let's have a think. Cut you out. That's a good one. Yeah. 
This might be one you've had before, but it's a favourite one of mine, especially when talking to children, is um, owls, for example, barn owls. They'll rear a brood of as many chicks as they can. But if, if food is scarce and they can't feed them all, then the smallest one will get fed to its brothers and sisters. So, uh, really? yeah, That's if you're the smallest cool. owl chick, watch out. You don't want to get eaten by your siblings. Parents to me are always like old men that are sitting in the park waiting for someone to come through and talk to them. Oh, it's just taken off. Yes, as I was saying, they're like old men sitting in the park waiting for someone to come and speak to them and make their day. But as soon as you approach them, they kind of move off and fly away and say, no, thank you, I don't want your company. The heron's gone and sat up at the top of a little knoll at the moment. And it's probably 25 metres away from me. Just sitting there checking me out. If I think this is the same heron as I normally see in front of my pond, it will know me quite well because I go out there and feed the birds. And every now and then it will pick up a little bit of food. And it feeds on the little fish that come to eat on the bread that I put out. Now I know as some birders will say you shouldn't be feeding them bread, but it's leftover crumbs from my kitchen. And instead of just chucking them on the compost pile, I take them out and chuck them on the pond for the mallards, the golden eyes the red-breasted magansas to eat on. I've always wanted to know more about terns, and there's no better place to go than Blakeney Point on the North Norfolk coast. I spoke to Duncan Halpin, who's the ranger there, and he works for the National Trust. How are you doing? Very well, very well. Yeah, it's a lovely... Lovely sunny morning, lovely sunny morning here. There's a bit of a little bit of thrush migration. I've had quite a few blackbirds this morning. I mean it's been such a poor been such a poor year really for, for migration. Constant westerly winds. It's not, not not had the big numbers of stuff that you might expect, but just overnight there seemed to be a little bit of little bit of thrush movement. So had a few blackbirds and red wings this morning, which is nice. Where are you at the moment? I am on Blakeney Point. I'm in the lifeboat house. Um, wow, it's a, uh, it's comfortable. Yeah. Um, Do you like it? Yeah, yeah, yeah I love it. I mean, this the, the, this place is amazing. It's like, um, yeah, one of the best, one of the best spots in Britain. I just supremely beautiful piece of coastline, and then yeah, I've got this this big blue big blue shed to live in. Can't can't really be beaten. I mean, it's not very busy this time of year. Um, a few people walking up the beach, see the seals. Everyone's gone in the evening. What kind of seals do you have there? Uh, grey seals. Uh, so we do have both. We have grey and common. Um, so, um, But the big attraction is the grey seals. Uh, they're coming up to their popping time now. So 
Over the winter, we're going to expect about somewhere in the region of 4,000 pups to be born out here. Amazing. Um, and what happens in the summer? So the summer is the best time um, because that's that's when we have the our breeding turn assemblage. What the point is famous for, certainly in my eyes anyway. Yeah, it's one of the most important sites in the country for breeding terns, um, particularly sandwich terns and little terns. So this year we had 3,134 pairs of sandwich tern breed, about 1,000 chicks, probably more than that. Quite difficult to estimate or get a good handle on the numbers of, of chicks once they start moving around. And we, and we also had 217 pairs of little tern. That's about, about 15% of the UK population. They didn't do quite as well. So most of the colony failed at the beginning of, beginning of July, partly or mostly um, to the presence of a short-eared owl. Okay. We can't really be certain. It's really difficult to, like, none of our, like, trail cameras picked anything up. Um, yeah. But, yeah, the nests sort of started to seem to fail as they hatched. And there was yeah. also this short-eared owl hanging around at the, and it's partially the predation of, like, say, chicks, and, but also the disturbance they cause as well. If you've got a short-eared owl hunting, say, all night, then yeah. all the adults will be off the nests and not, um, you know, not 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 brooding the chicks. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a problem with predators there? And do you do any predator control at all? So, in terms of general turn management, predation is one of the big pressures they have, and so our uh, we have problems with rats and gulls um, and then also foxes as well. Thankfully, we had a fox-free year this year. Uh, we, we manage predation in various ways, so we have sort of positive measures, if you like. So we use chick shelters. Uh, so they're basically sort of um, like little teepees if you for, for, um, made of like two slats of wood nailed together in a triangle. And then placed on the ground near nests so that the young chicks can, you know, run underneath them if there is an aerial predator around. Yeah. For little terns, that's very often kestrels. We do diversionary fe- diversionary feeding of the kestrels. Okay. okay. So we put up a couple of a couple of tables and um, spend the summer tossing frozen mice and chicks onto them <laughs> so that they yeah. don't so that they don't eat the eat the little turns which will, does yeah. work well it is it is it is an effective method of keeping kestrels away from um turn colonies how important is the site for turns so uh so incredibly um as i said it's this year it was, we had about 15 percent of the little turn uk little turn population um, we had 3,000 sandwich term pairs, which I'm going to put it together with a colony further along the coast, which is also owned by, the land is owned by the National Trust, um, Skolt Head. It's managed by Natural England. And between us, we had 7,000 pairs of sandwich term. And that's about 50% of the UK population. The North Norfolk coast is, yeah, incredibly important for, for terns, particularly sandwich terns. Um, yeah. and little turns, and it's incredibly important that it's protected. You know, those with such huge numbers, we're not talking a handful of turns that would disappear if everyone was allowed to, you know, come and bring their dog and picnic in the picnic in the colonies, etc. 
It's a yeah. really big proportion of, of of the UK population. And then when we're talking when we're talking about sandwich turns, that's a big proportion of the Europe Europe wide population as well. How do you do your monitoring and what does it entail? So the main two things we do are the counting of the nests and counting of the chicks. And that varies depending on species. Our sandwich turn counts, we use pasta. It sounds really weird, but we count out and then we go, we walk through the colony and we'll put a piece of pasta into each um, nest. And then when we're finished, we can see how many bags we've gone through and then how many pieces are left in the bag that's left. And it's just a really quick way of doing a ground count. You're not, all you're concentrating on is just the nest. You're not having to count, you're not having to click anything. The counting is done later. It just reduces the amount of disturbance. And if we do that with a few of us, then you you can count 3,000 nests in not a very long period of time because the less less these birds are disturbed, the better. And then what happens to the pasta? So it just degrades. Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure that most birds either bury it in the nest. Um, Well, nest is quite a grand term for a turn. Um, They're more like the scrapes really in the ground. And then the other thing uh, we do when we're doing that, we use um, a different 10% of those pasta shapes. Pasta shapes will be different. Um, and then when one of those gets thrown into a nest, we'll, on a clicker, we'll click the number of eggs in that nest. And that gives us, that way we've got a 10% sample of clutch size for the colony can be a, an indication of of um food availability uh, the idea being that they can to a degree control how many eggs they're going to lay based on based on local conditions if you like does the colony ever change its position from previous breeding years and do you try and attract them to one part of the coastline more so than others so uh yes is the answer um we they are I mean turns generally turns generally are very mobile um and that's that's partly why it's so important to protect big swathes of coastline as much as we can so so they have space space to go um but yeah so we do use there's a couple of things we use so we have um decoys which are model turns little plaster of paris molds um painted to look like turns they're not going to fool any human but they seem to they they seem to work with turns sometimes we also use um tape lures so they're the sort of sound of the colony play that through a speaker and that can be quite effective as well but we use those two sort of weapons if you like to try and attract the birds to where they're safest the way we do it for sandwich turns is interesting because we don't try and attract them directly. We try and attract black-headed gulls. Yeah, so there's this really so there's this really interesting dynamic with sandwich turns where they'll nest in very close proximity with black-headed gulls in 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 a mixed colony really. And although black-headed gulls 
although black-headed gulls are a predator, they will eat eggs and chicks. Um, they also provide the colony with a bit of defense because sandwich terns are pretty, unlike a lot of other terns, sandwich terns are pretty rubbish at defending themselves. They, they tend to just um, flush and then they don't do the sort of mobbing that you see other tern species doing. They rely on they sort of rely on the black-headed gulls to do that. So we try and attract the black-headed gulls um, in order to get the sandwich turns in. And you can see that you can see that link if you look at the figures for here in years where there are lots of black-headed gulls, there are also lots of sandwich turns. Um, and finally, I ask this question to all my guests: What cool scientific fact about birds can you give me? The Taxonomic name for um, sandwich tern is um, Thalassius sandiventiensis. Probably not said that right. Um, but that sandiventiensis usually in a taxonomic name refers to Hawaii because they were known as the Sandwich Islands. Um, but for the sandwich tern, it refers to sandwich in Kent. That's cool. I never knew that. That is, that is cool. That's a cool scientific fact. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Quick quick flick through the Rolodex in my head that's what came out why do you love being by the sea oh I don't know I think it satisfies something slightly primal um, in, there's, a, there's just a wildness about it um, and it's like a sort of it's like on it, it's, it's, it's an edge between sort of the hospitable and inhospitable i think that's and that's i don't know i think that speaks to something a little bit primal um yeah the, that that elemental you know if you've you got a big tide or something you just see the the sort of the, the power of nature the, you know that's that reminds you you're actually quite small really in the last series we had a lot of musical guests and I know you guys have been missing it, so we've decided to bring them back. And in the first of these interviews, we spoke to Martin Noble, the guitarist of Sea Power. Hi, I'm uh, Martin Noble, and I play guitar in the band Sea Power. Um, and we've been going for about 20 years now. Since we started, we've moved away from each other. Uh, <laughs> and we have two, two members who live on the northern tip of the Isle of Skye uh, and they get all the best wildlife experiences and then there's three of the band including me who live on the south coast. Uh, the band were previously known as British Sea Power and um, we changed our name uh, this year in fact. Um, I won't go too deeply into it but it was just something that was uh, bugging us for a while. We didn't want to be tied to a country. Uh, we're kind of a bit more international in our outlook. And yeah we've done about eight albums now uh, we've got a new one coming out next year we've done a few soundtracks um, one to a sort of 30s film called Man of Aaron which is just about the life on the, it's the Irish um, island of Aaron and the life how they lived it back there which was very very basic they, they had no soil there, they used to put seaweed down the crevices and grow potatoes from that and eat lots of birds, <laughs> capture um, basking sharks to use for for oil and for the meat, D 
doing the soundtrack to that was amazing. That was a, a really sort of pastoral, low-key kind of thing for us. We're normally we're a bit more indie rock, uh, a bit louder and in your face normally. I've always liked wildlife, really. But the thing with birds is they're kind of always in and around you. And when you go out for a walk, they're always there to see um, if you've got a keen eye. Uh, you know, I love weasels and stoats just as much and pine martins. But, um, you know, they're, they're a lot, they're few and far between. We're kind of labelled as an ornith- ornithological band and and maybe oddball for that. Um, and, and it kind of got us a bit of a geeky sort of image much to the, the annoyance of the rest of the band because they do like wildlife but you know I, I studied zoology so I kind of was in there a little bit more um I was all for it um, but I can see how it affected the image of the band um, and we kind of tried to yeah we've tried to play it down but it keeps coming back and I I love it to be honest I think um the more people that know and can enjoy it and I think it just enriches people's lives um, and we used to put on uh, stage these large plastic effigies of herons, um, eagle owls and peregrine falcons. They used to get stolen a lot, so uh, we had to stop doing that. That was quite a big dent in our touring budget. <laughs> we started an album before lockdown and it, it could be very similar to a lot of other bands who you think it's going to be released in six months and then everything grinds to a halt. But it sort of gave us time to uh, not rush it and you could, you know, go out for long walks, listening to your demos and and come back with a new idea. I think it's the first time, perhaps since the first album, that we've we've had that amount of time to work on songs and, and really sort of fine-tune them. It's kind of been a, a blessing in a way. <laughs> we've, we've had a few shows, um, but, yeah, cannot wait to get back to doing some box shows in boxes <laughs> we just moved um just before lockdown just out of brighton so i kind of got my first patch something that i could call my patch which was a uh, was really nice so i spent a lot of the time going on small walks then longer walks and then longer walks and i started up i live in the place called salt dean where i live I started up a little a group called Salt Dean Wildlife Group. There's six six people on it so far, but I just we get um, sparrowhawks. I've had this year. I've well, I planted a few wild plants, some teasel and knapweed and stuff to try and get um, goldfinches in. And we had a white throat in the garden, which is pretty amazing. And willow warbler. And considering there's there's not many trees around here, that was that was quite special. So I post. I, I take photos through my binoculars because I don't have a, a telescopic lens on my camera you know there's a lot of people get obsessed with I don't know uh, paving the gardens and uh, putting even oh god astroturf oh god um, and yeah even like making little holes uh, um, in your fences to let hedgehogs go through uh, that's, that's our next project getting some hedgehogs because yeah, there's, you see the odd one. We don't, we have badgers actually. They they go live on the tie and come down and dig up our garden. But it's fine. 
It's fine, it's theirs just as much as ours. Touring um, generally involves going to urban places. Uh, there's sort of black boxes, there's lots of noise, um, and you kind of gradually pine for the outdoors and, and you really miss nature. So it kind of builds up a, a desire being on tour. It gets this desire going so as soon as you get back, you like to get out into the peace and quiet and get as far away from that as possible. So it is kind of a dual life. We did a tour with Pulp, which was in um, a forestry tour, forestry commission tour. And that was amazing. We we were in Thetford Forest and we heard that there were nightjars there and it was kind of that time of the season. And I asked one of the rangers and they said, oh yeah, if you go out here and you go to this scrubland, you might get lucky. And we went out there. We were trying to get Jarvis Cocker to come with us, but uh, he was hobnobbing with uh, lots of people. <laughs> so we left him to it. And, and yeah, we got to see one. We, we heard the cheering to start with and then sort of came out in this scrub and up it came, flew off like this sort of prehistoric animal. Yeah, I think the forestry tour was just great to get people out um, into the forest um, so, you know, they could enjoy the day out in the woods. And there was there was a definitely a different ambience there. It was um, a little bit softer. You know, there was a slight magical air that, you know, you go into a big venue in a city, you know, they're kind of soulless. You know, the wind was blowing. You can, you can hear the trees the wind in the trees in between songs. It was really lovely, that element. And we, we put on a festival a couple of years ago, just on the west coast of the Lake District. Uh, Moncaster Castle was the place. And they, they've got a, a bird of prey centre there. A guy from the RSPB came and did a, a walk with um, loads of fans. I had to go really early for that. And that was painful. I think if you can bring that into into it and just enrich the whole experience so it's not just music it really stays with people as um as having a, a magical time you know something that that lasts in your mind forever the countryside and the rural environment is in a lot of our songs maybe not in a, a massively obvious way but there are three of the band who are from the Lake District and and that always seeps in. And we have an instrumental called The Great Skewer. I've nicked um, recordings or I've done my own recordings of bird sound and manipulated them with effects just to create almost like um, keyboardy effects. Like, you know, when um, herringles are all having a big screen together and it sort of reaches a cacophony and you put loads of delay on that. And so where a song, I think in the song Waving Flags, there's a peak in the song and underneath all that is all these herringles. And you can't really tell it's herringles, but they're there and they, they really help. I've mixed um, the nightjar churring and the storm petrol. That, they do a kind of churring as well. And I've mixed those together. Um, and they're definitely there um, every time I hear it. I know specifically what it is to other people. They just think it's a, an electronic instrument, I think. Yeah, you can get some great sounds. 
there's loads of starlings around where I live and um, they it's, it's incredible the noises that they make is going to break them all down they do beatboxing don't they it's far too complex for me and I think it's I think wildlife and the natural world sets a bar of quality and, and when you experience it in a way you know it gets the dopamine going or gives you a feeling of grandeur you kind that's the bar that you need to get your music to I find I've seen a lot of um, wee tears recently there's a just by me there's a, a a bit of the South Downs that runs to the cliffs called Telscombe Tye. Um, and there's a track that runs down the middle of it, which was a, the old funeral track. So they've kind of dug into the ground and made two banks either side. And loads and loads of rabbits live in there. But every year, um, wheat ears come and sort of breed in the unused rabbit holes. So there's you get quite a lot of them. And they, they sort of appear at different parts of the funeral track each year whether there's rabbits in them or not. I kind of weirdly identify with them. I don't know why. But yeah, they're kind of on their own or in, in little groups and a little bit aloof, but sometimes they can be quite confiding. They can just be sat there really close to you. And yeah, I, I can't tell you why, but <laughs> it's so mystical. Thank you all for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure so far doing this series. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us at GetBirdingPod. And hopefully there you can ask all the questions, leave reviews for us, and any topics you'd like us to cover in the future. The curlew's flying across the bay, calling, and it's changed positions, but it's come from a field behind the house where they're doing a little bit of work and construction. And I think one of those guys might have flushed it and it's come to seek shelter on the shore here. And as soon as it lands, it becomes camouflaged. It blends in so well with its surroundings. And it's only when it moves that you can actually pick it up and see its silhouette and see that long, gorgeous beak that's bent ever so gently with the tip of it just about pointing towards the ground. I always wonder how these birds preen themselves because you can see starlings and herring gulls and 
ducks preening themselves using their beak and they can get to most places but with such a long one like the curlew has I always wonder how they keep their feathers so pristine and beautiful. Get Birding is sponsored by Birding Optic Specialist Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance, insuring conservation groups across the UK. Get Birding is a peanut and crumb production.